Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast, And don't forget to get your copy of Only One Shot. That's available at Amazon. That was written by VJ Trolio. Special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. And you can find Steve at steveazar.com. Well, folks, you've heard his voice. You've seen him on many of the Golf Channel's live golf coverage, especially on the LPGA. It's Grant Boone, and we have him on the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. Grant, we finally got you on. Welcome. Jimmy G, uh, I know you were saving the best for last, and then when you couldn't get them, you called me, and I'm happy to be here. Well, we've got to get you. My, you. You know everything my, LPGA. You're like the smartest guy. You're like Google. You're like our search engine. Uh, I don't know. How, how do you do um, all that stuff? More, I'd say more goober than Google, but go ahead. Well, I, I like that too. That's why we get along yeah. so well. But uh, <laughs> that's true. You know, that's it's a perfect it's a perfect combination. So tell us a little bit about yourself growing up in the younger days, about your family, and uh, kind of just what it was like growing up, Grant Boone, a, as a youngster. Yeah, it was a thrill uh, it, <laughs> for me. Um, you know, I I grew up um, in Nashville, Tennessee. Lived a few years in Memphis of one of your epic wins yeah um and then uh and then moved my, all my families from nashville the nashville tennessee area and moved back there when i was in nine my dad was in social work my dad's brother is pat boone the singer and and uh so i grew up in a in kind of a, in an extended entertainment family and uh pat would come back and and see his folks my grandparents you know three four times a year and it would always be a big a group gathering, big family of four, four siblings. And so, you know, 15, 20, 30 people around the table and my grandparents, uh, you know, at my grandparents' house where my aunt still lives uh, to this day there in, in uh, the Green Hills area of Nashville. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a fun childhood growing up with, you know, with uh, a celebrity as an uncle. And, and I do think that's some of what uh, inclined me maybe to, to to lean towards the the world of of uh, show business from this side of it, the sports side of it. You know, as as a kid growing up, who you know lived, ate, and breathed sports. Um, it, you know, and, and to, to to realize at five or six years old that there was such a thing as a sports broadcaster. It, it, that's all I ever wanted to do. And and uh, even in high school, as a freshman, sophomore in high school in Nashville, I was uh, very, very fortunate to to have uh, uh, a teacher at school um, set me up with a, uh, an opportunity to do some sports casting for local games. Uh, in fact, this was really cool. So, Mr. Gaddy's the pizza place mm-hmm. uh, in that the the, the the ones that were the, the owner of the ones in Nashville had a cool idea. He created a production company and you could hire Mr. Gaddy's video is what it was called. You could hire them to come video your game. So it's talking mid eighties. Okay. Mm-hmm. With the big giant camcorder you'd put on your shoulder and we would come and we'd video your games, church league, softball, beer league, softball. Sometimes it was the same depending on the church. <laughs> um, True. 
it, it could be it could be a, a Christmas parade in some podunk town outside Nashville. It, it could be peewee football, basketball. We would shoot your game, and I would do the announcing, and then we'd take the videotape, the old VHS tape, mm-hmm. back to whatever the nearest Mr. Gaddy's was. They'd pop it in the big screen. The kids would eat pizza or the players would eat the pizza and watch their game back, and I'm doing the commentary. That was my that was my big break into the world of broadcast. I'm 15, 16 years old. Didn't know squat about anything except that I wanted to be a sportscaster. Plus, I got to eat free pizza. Uh, it, it was, you know, in many ways, nothing's ever been better than that. So that was your uh, first. That was your first gig. That was my first gig, and so my per diem was in pizza. And it was uh, it was great, and and uh, then I went to uh, graduated high school in Nashville, uh, went to college at Abilene Christian University, and I grew up in the Church of Christ family, which is in mostly in the South, and uh, Lipscomb University is, is where my uh, my cousin Will Brewer is the head mm-hmm. golf coach, and Will was a long you've known Will, he's a long time instructor and also a great player. He won the NAIA national title for Lipscomb back in the late seventies and. Uh, so Lipscomb is a great old school. All my family went there except for me, and I went out to college, dabbling Christian, majored in broadcasting, met my wife there, uh, and and off I went uh, after I graduated, working during the during my college days, calling football, basketball, and working on the local campus uh, radio station. Graduated in 1991 from ACU, and off I went into the world of broadcasting. So who were some of your broadcasting heroes growing up? Uh, mm. And maybe even now, because I'm sure they still, yeah. are, still are. Besides you? Oh, yeah. Well, you got to raise the bar a little higher yeah. than that. Well, um, <laughs> you know, growing up, it was, you know, it was people like Keith Jackson and Dick Inberg and, and uh, Ben Scully. Uh, I would watch Ben Scully on the Game of the Week, and he was calling the Masters and Jack Whitaker and Jim McKay. Uh, and guys like that. And then a little later came, you know, Jim Nance, who's now become a friend, and guys like Vern Lundquist and Brent Musburger. These are just absolute, you know, gods to me growing up. And um, to to get to know some of them, I think I've met all of them at some point. Um, And, and, you know, almost to to a man or a woman there, they've just been incredibly uh, kind gracious people and um and and that's been that's been a bonus but um pat summerall you know th- th- these were the voices of my they, they narrated my youth basically in the late 70s uh early and mid 80s uh and and in fact you know last week uh when i got the chance to do the women's open at carnoustie uh, a couple of people would send me screenshots they were watching or whatever and to see the giant carnoustie hotel behind us in the 18th green behind Karen Supples and me, we were, you know, in the 18th tower. You know, I, I had these flashbacks to all the years that I watched Jim McKay or, or, um, you know, Jack Whitaker through the years sit there in the 18th or Peter Alice in the 18th tower and that have, you know this great backdrop behind them. It was it was a, a goosebumpy kind of weekend. Not that you copied them, but did you try to take things that they did and maybe help that with your broadcasting when you were maybe early on? And even you have your own style, but did you take some of the stuff that they did and maybe 
I don't know, educate yourself with that and kind of use it as a, hey, I'm going to try to do it like he did or try to not copy. I, I guess that's not really the word because you want to have your own identity, but use some of their skills and, and things you watch them do so successfully. Oh, sure. Yeah, and, 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 and probably more than anything, there were subtle ways in which those guys' uh, styles seeped into the way I did it. Um, you know, I, I also grew up, you talk about influences, uh, I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan, and uh, mm. in Nashville, you could get 700 WLW, the big 50,000-watt uh, AM radio station that forever is, has, uh, has been the, the home of the Reds. I could hear those broadcasts after dark, and, and mm. you know, it's so funny now with satellite radio, a lot of younger people don't realize that, you know, AM radio really gets strong after dark when the big stations become more powerful. A lot of stations in the old days would sign off at, at, at sunset and you could hear 700 WLW uh, clear as a bell after dark. And so I would listen to Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxall call the games for the Reds. Uh, and, and again, it, it's more of just the, probably the subtle ways that maybe I don't even, even subconscious or unconscious ways that, that I don't even realize that those guys uh, influence me. Uh, but, but more than anything, I think for me, every time I'm on the air, whether I'm calling an Abilene Christian basketball game, uh, as I've been doing for the last umpteen years, even, even in the midst of calling golf or football uh, for Abilene Christian, uh, whether it's that or whether I'm calling the Masters, the tone of my voice might be different if I'm at, you know, to 12 at Amen Corner, you know, versus, you know, ACU beating Texas in the NCAA basketball tournament as they did in March. My, my volume level would be different, but in each case, every time I'm on the air, uh, in fact, before I go on the air, every time I, I close my eyes and I thank God, you know, that I get to do this for a living. I mean, who ever has had a better job than this? It's not anywhere close to the most important job in the world. There are a million more. But for me, it's all I've ever wanted to do, you know. Who gave you your first job right after college? Who was, what was your first job? Yeah. Um, when I got out of uh, – when I graduated ACU, my wife, who is a year younger, had one more year. And so I had come back from Nashville where I'd worked with Mark Howard uh, at, the cha at Channel 5, the CBS affiliate. That whole summer after I graduated, I interned for him, and it, that was almost like a master's degree. You do the four years of school, and then you have to do the real job, and it's like this was as important as those four years of studying. And then I came back to Abilene, and, and we got married in that November while she was still a senior. And uh, I got a job with the local ABC affiliate as a news reporter. Uh, and so I was dying a little bit, you know, wanting to cover sports and instead at school board and city council. And, and, uh, and, and let's face it, school board can be a contact sport uh, uh, in it its is. own right, depend, depending on what they're talking about. But uh, um, and, and I'll always be grateful because, you know, in some ways I've never had a harder job. I was making $14,000 a year. And, and uh, finding my own stories, going to shoot it myself. I had to go ahead and edit it myself, write the story myself, get it on the air. Uh, it was really hard work, but important in my development to, to learn how to, to tell a story with video and, and to write to video and to, to let the, the pictures do the talking.
Yeah, you uh, mentioned and, you mentioned that. That's the toughest part of local is you do everything, everything. So hard and for no money. And, yeah. and you know, when, when I was at ACU, our, our uh, the, the department chair one uh, one in, in one class we were it was broadcast news or something, and and he said ninety five percent of you who graduate from this uh, department are not going to go into broadcast. And wow. it, it, that, that comment served two purposes. He said, stati- he said that's statistical. It's just you're not going to wind up going into broadcasting. He said, just for whatever reason. But, but it, 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 it served two purposes. For those who really weren't serious about it, they just kind of chose journalism because it sounded good. It kind of convinced them that they better start looking elsewhere. And for those of us who were dead set on it, it, it steeled our nerve even more. Like, I'm going I'm to be 5%. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. going to be me. So how and, you, how, and so I, how do you deal with that when a guy walks in there, yeah. a professor walks in there, and pretty much blows pops the balloon? How do you deal with that? What do you yeah, do yourself. It, what, what it told me was, I'll, I'll show him. And he yeah. wasn't saying it even harshly. He no. was trying to prepare everyone. And I said, just watch. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be one of the five percent. And and um, so when I got that gig for for the for K Texas, which is the the ABC affiliate doing. Uh, news for about five or six months. It was a, it was uh, it was really important to get me started, and then I got a chance to go to Dallas to do radio for a network, uh, a radio network in Dallas, uh, and it was there that I got to cover sports on a national level. I was doing updates every hour, and you'd get to go to to Dallas Fort Worth sporting events, Rangers, Stars, Mavericks. The Stars actually moved from Minnesota the the, the time I was there. Cowboys, of course, were America's team and, and still obviously are right up there among the most popular teams ever. So you get to be around big moments, big, big events. And, uh, and it was there at that network, USA Radio Network in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that I first got credentialed to go to the Masters. And it was 1996. It was uh, the, the Norman Faldo year. And I got, and that was still back in the days, right as the internet was coming along, and, and getting a credential wasn't easy. But you know, when I set up, I'm part of a network of 1,500 affiliates. They gave me the credential. I I, I went to Augusta, covered the tournament, and uh, I don't know, Jim, if you know this from from a guy having competed there so many years. But what blew me away about the Masters, the first time I, among the many things that blew me away, the thing that was maybe the most shocking to me. And it, it it pertained to what I was there to do, which was to cover sports, cover the golf tournament for a sports radio network. There are there are, are several places on the on the golf course that are secluded. It's where the concession stands are. You can go back behind the hedges and get you a, you know pimento cheese sandwich or whatever. In those areas where there are also restrooms, there there were banks of payphones. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's it's like, and for me, working for a radio network, I was like, this is perfect. I never have to be too far away from a phone that I could go and use to call in my report that hour. So I would follow the groups around, and when it was almost forty-five after the hour, I'd I'd peel off and go find one of those you know concession areas where there was a payphone. I'd call in my report, you know, uh, here it is, day two of the Masters, Greg Norman has a commanding lead, and yada, yada, yada. So on the Sunday of that Masters in 96, I followed Norman and Faldo around all 18 holes, and every hour I would 
peel off, go find the payphone, call in my report. And when I got back, when that was over, and I listened back to my reports, it was it was eerie almost because the first one was Greg Norman, so close at so many masters, begins this final round six shots ahead of Nick Faldo, and they're about to tee off at the Masters. And then the next report, Greg Norman's lead is four as he plays the third hole at the Masters the next hour. Greg Norman's lead is down to one as they make the turn. At the end. And then the next hour, Greg Norman is has lost his six shots. It was really weird to go back and listen, you know, because mm. they were every hour. And what transpired in that hour, you know, uh, w- was amazing. Well, I took those when I was there at the Masters. In the in the old press room, now they have this palatial mansion that houses the media. And uh, back then, it was just a, still a, an amazing press facility they had before that. But I noticed there were people um, up at the very top of the press box uh, or the top of the, the press room who were appeared to be calling the Masters on radio play by play, and you know, calling it, you know, as it, you'd like you do for baseball or football. And long about January of 97, this is a few months after I'd been to my first Masters, I called up the PGA Tour just to say, do you know who that was broadcasting? They said, yeah, that wasn't us. It was CBS Radio, and they were, you know, they were doing their broadcast. They said, funny you call, though. We're about to start our own radio network. And, in fact, here are the people that are doing it. And if you're interested, you know, give them a call. I called that group, and they had bought the rights from the PGA Tour to launch a brand new radio network called PGA Tour Radio Network, and and they were going to do play by play, and they're all also going to do an, a, a Saturday magazine type show, and they were going to do hourly updates during the tournament. Call them. I auditioned. I flew to Atlanta, and Bob Trumpy, who I think was calling the Ryder Cup that you did, that you played in in '93, sure did. Yeah, Trumpy was this. Oh my gosh! I mean, he you, actually interviewed. You me. talk about the the golden pipes of, of Bob Trumpy. Nobody's ever had better better voice uh, in sports broadcasting than Trumpy. No, he they was flew phenomenal. Trumpy and me in together. He, he of course he used to play football for the Bengals and was super uh, football player, but then became a great announcer. And they flew us in the same day wow. to audition at PGA Tour Radio Network. And I thought, well, this has been fun. I'm never going to get a job, <laughs> but but at least I got to meet Bob Trumpy. I got a free plane ticket to Atlanta and got to audition. They call me. They send me a letter the next week, and they said, "We want you to be the guy." They said Trumpy was great, but and in turn, of course, you know the deal. Mm-hmm. Trumpy wasn't going to work for that for that money, and he wasn't going to move from Cincinnati, where he was a you know superstar on local radio. So I got the job mainly because I was willing to move to Atlanta. So moved to Atlanta, started working for PGA Tour Radio, did that for three years, and then got hired at Golf Channel in 2000. All right. So you mentioned Augusta. You got to tell the story. Uh, oh my god! I don't remember where, what order of your life it is, but uh, you, 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 as I recall, you're covering the Masters, and you got a chance yeah. to play Monday. But you have a, did. you got an interview in Atlanta. It's all yours. Yeah. Take her away. That was that was. Uh, um, you knew I was going to bring so that up. <laughs> any, any credibility that I might have earned over these last twenty years of broadcasting golf is about to be erased in, in one story. Um, so it, this is the same year, 1996. I thought and so. Knowing, knowing I was going to the Masters, uh, 
my job in, in Dallas had kind of reached its ceiling. There was no way to go any, any higher than I'd gone. And, you know, I, I'm looking to, to maybe find something else, which is ultimately what led the U.S. to PGA Tour radio. But, um, you know, I was going to fly into Atlanta, then drive to Augusta. And I thought, if I'm going to Atlanta, I mean, why not see if I can get an interview at CNN? Maybe, maybe they're hiring. And if, back then they were about to launch CNN SI, which was going to be a, um, partner with Ship with Sports Illustrated to try to compete against ESPN. And people forget, now this is 25 years ago, okay? This, this CNN had Fred Hickman, Nick Charles, Vince Cellini. Uh, they were coming off years when they had Dan Hicks and Hannah Storm uh, right. and Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. I mean, th- CNN Sports was legit. Jim Huber, the late, great Jim Huber mm, was I there. I mean, they were and they were big, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to interview. See, I'm going to call them up and see if I can get an interview. Well, they gave me an interview, and it was going to be the Monday after the Masters at 2 p.m. And I'm thinking, this is who knows where this could lead. I mean, yeah, you know, this could be the, the the break of a lifetime. Well, I I um, get to the Masters and I'm there and and I meet a guy and we become friends and he's been to the Masters several years and he said, you know, they he was a, a reporter from Texas, too. And he said, you know, they have a lottery, a media lottery. I, I was positive he was making this up. No way do they let the media play on the Monday after the ma- at Augusta. Never in a million years. So I asked the crusty old Dallas morning news golf writer, Frank Luxa. I said, Frank, is this true? He said, oh, I've been coming here 30 years. I put my name in every year. Never get it. But yeah, it's true. I said, oh, my gosh. Now, I didn't have my golf clubs with me. I had nothing rem- remotely that would prepare me, uh, including a, a, a half-reasonable half golf swing. <laughs> nothing that would prepare me to play at Augusta. But I threw my name in the hat. Saturday morning, I show up for round three of the Masters, and they said, check the digital board to see if your name's been chosen. And there's Boone, comma, Grant chosen to play i'm going to play monday morning at augusta national the morning after the masters the morning after greg norman finally earns his long you know awaited elusive green jacket so now saturday norman's cruising to a six-shot lead and as much as i'm reporting on his round i'm also scrounging around trying to think where am i going to get golf clubs because you're not going to walk in on a monday morning and just tell the pro shop at Augusta national, Hey, could you have a rental set, you know? And, and so when, when the tournament is, when the round ended Saturday, Norman's got a six shot lead and it's, it's all smiles and giggles. I go to a local golf shop about a mile down the road and I rented a set of golf clubs, put it in my bag, in my car. And, and I said, I'll, I agreed. I'll bring them back when the round is over Monday. And, what I had thought in my it, these great plans I had, they said be at Augusta National at 6:45. That's what the envelope that that guaranteed my my place on Monday morning 6:45 show up at the gate. I'm thinking, okay, it's two hours to to Atlanta from Augusta, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really about 2:20 to downtown. But I'm talking myself into this. You might mind you. So it's, I'm thinking, too, if, if I tee off 6.45, if I tee off at, let's say, 7.15 even, four-hour round, throw your sport coat and tie on, you dash to, to a CNN tower, and you're there by 1.30, 1.45, 2 o'clock meeting? What could possibly go wrong? 
<laughs> except for the fact that when I show up Monday morning with the box of X-out golf balls and shoes that I bought at Kmart on Sunday night after Greg Norman, I'm not sure which was more ignominious, Norman losing a six-shot lead or me buying X-out golf balls at Kmart <laughs> to play Augusta National. I show up with my, my X-out golf balls, my new golf shoes, my rented set of clubs at 645, and I'm waiting. And, and you're just going to, of course, you're, what, you got you on the list, great. Whenever we call your name, you'll tee off 10, and off you'll go. Well, 7.30 comes. They don't call on it. There's 50 or 60 or 70 people there, media, some sponsors, some club members. It's, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge. And, and then they don't call your name, and they're sending people off in groups of two or three, sometimes four. Eight o'clock comes around. At eight o'clock, I'm getting nervous because I'm thinking eight, four hours, noon, two hours. Eh, Got to take the clubs back to the golf shop. Um, this set of rentals probably had never been on Augusta National. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I am, I'm now getting nervous. Eight thirty rolls around, and I'm just double double checking. Is my name? Yeah, you're got it right here. Just wait. We'll call you. You're not pushing it. You're at Augusta National. You don't no. want to be, you know, overbearing. Finally, at 9 o'clock, they still not call my name. And I'm like, okay, I've got to call CNN, and I've got to push this interview back. So I called the guy at CNN. He says, um, no, actually, the last interview I have for the day, I mean, the last time I have available is two when I see you. I'm, I'm booked the rest of the day. Why do, you, why do you ask? I said, well, I've got a chance to play Augusta National, and there's silence on the other end. <laughs> And he breaks silence by saying, and you're still considering coming in for this interview? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, sir. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I really am grateful for your giving me the interview, and I, I want to keep it. I don't want to miss it. He says, you have to play Augusta National. You have to. This is not up for debate. We can meet any time. You play Augusta National. I said, no. I said, sir, really, I, I, I want to honor the time you've given me. He said, well, Grant, I don't know what to tell you. Literally, as soon as I leave meeting with you, I'm in meetings the rest of the day. But I implore you to play Augusta National. I said, no, sir. I'll keep my tea time. I'll, I'll keep my, my meeting time at 2 o'clock. He said, okay, I'll see you there. I still think you ought to play. No, sir, I'll see you at 2. And I've now resigned myself. I'm going to play nine holes. I'm going to walk off Augusta National, and I'm going to dash to CNN to hopefully – you know, make a good impression and maybe get hired at some point and, and take a step up in my career. And finally at 9.45, they call my name to go off one. Or I could wait and go off 10 when they called me and I said, I'm going to get as many holes in as possible. I tee off one, take off, had a great round, hit a bunch of good shots, but I hit my approach to nine and just like Greg Norman, spin it back off the green <laughs> A little less at stake, but uh, both of us spin it off the green. I then pitch up, hole out, tell my playing competitors goodbye. Not competitors, partners. I walk, I walk off the ninth hole at Augusta National, jump in the car, throw my sport coat and tie on, take the clubs back, mad dash for Atlanta. I'm weaving my uh, – apparently Atlanta has traffic. Didn't really factor that in. Um, weaving my way through traffic in Atlanta, get to CNN Tower, which is not like walking into a subway in a strip mall. 
I mean, you're you're going in, you're parking, which is you know, along with seven thousand other people, you go up, you have to get security clearance. By the time I get to the 18th floor or whatever it is where that sports office was, it's 2:35. Oh gosh. Not only have I walked off Augusta National after nine, I've, I'm 35 minutes late. The guy comes in, couldn't have been nicer, but as he promised, he had meetings that he was headed into. I was there less than 10 minutes. He took the tape that I gave him of some of my highlights, you know, such as they were, says, I'll take a look at this, you know, and if something comes along and we think you're a fit, I've, I will certainly let you know. Nice to meet you. I slink out of the office, <laughs> stumble down the elevator, and walk out to my rental car, and I'm just like, what have I done? And so, of course, I didn't get the job. And, and in hindsight, I'm, I'm thinking, why would he hire someone to cover sports <laughs> who doesn't realize that playing Augusta National trumps everything? He probably thought he clearly knows nothing about sports or else he would have stayed and played. So the happy ending was that eight years later, through the generosity of a, of a member in Nashville whom I had known, uh, I got to go play Augusta National. My Uncle Pat flew in from California. It's the year he was turning 70. Uh, you do the math, he's now 87. So Pat and I got to play uh, with that member from Nashville. Uh, we played the, the par three course on Friday morning, had lunch, played 27 holes that afternoon, played 18 the next day. And uh, so you take that 45 holes I played plus the nine from 96, and I got 54 holes in. So tell me you didn't you, you brought your own clubs and you got rid of those shoes and X-out balls. I tell went back to the same rental shop, and I went back to the same rental shop, and I said, guys, brought my own this time. Thanks. <laughs> I had to have you tell that story. I got well. I tell you this. I tell you this. In all seriousness, that was in 2004 when I got to go back and play. Earlier that summer at Whistling Straits, uh, it was the first day of school for my uh, second son Nick, and I left Whistling Straits after nine holes on on uh, on that Monday, so I could be home when he got home from his first day of kindergarten. And so I walked off after nine at Augusta in 96 and after nine at the PGA in 04. And so my story from that point on is I was halfway toward the walk-off grand slam. That's true. (laughs) See? So you have all I need is a U.S. Open and an Open Championship, and I'll have it. I don't think anyone's, after they hear this, they're never going to invite you. (laughs) No one's ever going to talk to me again, ever. Well, No, they'll probably invite you just out of pity. (laughs) That. Or invite me and then say, sorry, uh, you know, you're late and we don't have any time. No, we'll let you play nine. You, so. We'll let you play nine. We'll let you play get you late. Nine and dime, <laughs> like Kate Cockle. Oh, that was awesome. That's a great story. And as we like to say, uh, when things get uncomfortable, to 12. And that's for to 12. And that's, Anytime you don't know, if, if you're any awkward moment, you just make like a golf announcer and say to 12. And anytime you hear us say that, that's usually what we say. So that's for, that's for yeah. another podcast that we probably all know. It is for another. For the to 12 podcast. But yeah. that's a, that's an awesome story. Now, you said you did radio. And, and, and what are the differences of the challenges doing radio versus TV? Because TV, people see things. Radio. Great you're describing is that the what what are the challenges because and how do you do do the multiple sports that's the crazy part you don't just do golf like me i do what i know yeah 
Well, you, you nailed it. I mean, really, in, in, in a, to boil it down to its most concise, uh, you know, description, which I never do, by the way, um, it's because I came from radio. You're, you're never concise. The most concise way to put it is in TV, you can see it. In radio, you can't. And so when you're calling it, um, if I'm calling football on radio, um, you know, I'm saying he's at the 30, the 25, 20, 15. If I'm doing it for TV, I'm not saying that people can see he's at the 30, the 25, the 20, the 50. You know, so TV, you let the pictures do the talking. Uh, and then and then you 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 do more caption writing. You know, you try to punctuate the moment to try to contextualize it. When you're doing radio, you are the only uh, descriptor for the the for the listener you are the only way they know what's going on so you're trying to give vivid descriptions of of you know of everything going on it's a four-man front in football you know they uh they drop seven you know in in baseball the, the pitcher you know tugs on his sleeve he shakes off the catcher and you know and in basketball it's one dribble two dribbles you know wipes the sweat off his brow you know, cocks it, lets it go, then, you know, so you're, you're doing way more of the, of the actual play-by-play in television. Again, it's, it's uh, the idea of less is more. And that was something I had to learn uh, coming from radio golf where you're, you know, describing, you know, he's over the putt, pulls the putter back, it's on its way, lifts the cup, and he's going to have that left for par. In, in, in golf, it's, uh, you know, it, it's way less. And so, you know, when I first got into to TV golf in 2000, Golf Channel, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling like you've got to say more than you really need to say. And, uh, you know, that, that's always a work in progress. How much do you say? How much do you not say? And, you know, um, there are times you wish you would have said something um, more, and there are a few times you wish you would have said something less or something different, and you're always, you know, reviewing and trying to tweak it and and uh, fine tune and get better at what you do. But uh, in in TV, you know, like last Saturday, last Sunday, when Anna Nordquist wins, you know, you 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 say, I, I think something like uh, I, I said, you know, she's the last woman standing. Anna Nordquist conquers Carnoustie. She's a major champion again. Mm-hmm. Then you stop and right. you let the applause come and you just let it roll. And, and, you know, you don't need to say the crowd is cheering her on. They can see that they're cheering her on. So that's the fun part, always trying to get better and find the right thing to say at the right moment and then know when to lay out. And, you know, it's it's always a work in progress. Do you have a fond moment or the probably in golf, covering golf, and then I'll ask you about Abilene Christian. What's your kind of moment that stands out in your mind covering golf, the kind of something you'll always remember when you were covering it? Yeah. Uh, golf-wise, you know, sometimes it's it's for the great moments, and, and other times it's it's for the, the, the just the, the carnage. But, um, you know, I, I – the – I started, I started covering the Masters in 2010 for CBS, some of their bonus coverage that was on direct, that's on direct TV and masters.com. And, uh, the first couple of years I did featured groups. And since 2012, I've been doing, uh, the aim in corner coverage. And the first year I did it 2010 was, was Mickelson. And it was his third masters. And it was after, you know, his wife had Amy had 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 beaten cancer and she was there and you remember the tear coming down his face and 
and he had hit the shot through the trees at 13, and, and that was great. Um, some of our best moments, you know, referring back to what we said earlier about just not saying anything, some of your best work is when you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we do the aim and corner coverage, we all we have are, are holes 11 through 13. So we have the advantage, unlike when Lance Barrow or now Seller Shy are producing the Masters, they've got to go all over the golf course on, uh, you know, which which is so volatile. You get, you know, when Tiger won a couple of years ago, uh, you've got, you know, so many players in contention with a chance to win. They can't go to a hole and park it there for two minutes like we can. Well, um, one of my favorite moments, uh, let, let's say one good and one bad with speed, in 2016, he's the defending champ, and he's got the five-shot lead going to the second nine, and he bogeys 10, bogeys 11, and, and I'm calling 12 when he hits it. You know, as always, it goes back to 12. Mm, and, he, and, and, and he dunks his tee shot in there. Then he takes uh, his, his drop, and he chunks the second one in there, and Billy Ray Brown and I are you know, we're literally speechless. There's nothing to say, uh, because, and yet that's said at all. Well, that was a memorable moment. But then uh, in, in 2017, the next year, he actually had a, a reasonably good chance to win as well. Uh, and and he's at, he's at 13, and he's in the pine straw, and he's got a chance. You know, he's three or four shots back, but a chance here. And it's like, do I hit a hybrid or do I lay it up? And this was the first master since Arnold Palmer had passed the previous September. And – you may remember MasterCard had that campaign, What Would Arnie Do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in, it was a big promotional commercial campaign. And we're just saying, Billy Ray and I are saying nothing. We're listening to Michael Greller and Jordan Spieth go back and forth about, you know, uh, what, what should we do here? And we hear Spieth say, what would Arnie do, Mike? He said now, that. And Greller says, wow. he said it to Greller. And Greller, this was on Saturday afternoon. And Greller says something like, he'd hit the hybrid and probably hit it onto the green and make the putt for eagle. And he pulls the hybrid, hits it onto the green. He missed the putt for eagle. But he had an amazing shot from the pine straw. And, and it really thrust him into contention on, you know, he wound up, you know, top five finish. And, and uh, it was, it was a, but it was the kind of moment that you wouldn't have gotten if, because I don't think TV, I, I know TV never got that. Because uh-uh. they, they're, they're showing other shots because, you know, the other people are leading, and 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 uh, a couple of people heard it and they replayed it. It went viral on Twitter there for a minute, and again, it was you. It wasn't me that they were listing. It was, but that's what you did. It's not people aren't tuning in to hear me. You know, that's but that's why they tell us to lay out when they're talking. Lay out. Let them be. It was it was an amazing moment. So so that was cool. Calling Nichols and calling Speed, uh, getting to do that. Um, but you know what? It, it's also all the years of covering, um, you know, Corn Ferry Tour. And I got to do a Corn Ferry a couple of weeks ago in Omaha. And you're watching guys. You know, here's uh, your fellow University of Tennessee alum, David Skin. Yep, 16 you know, years. Who, who, yep. Oh, he'd been grinding. He'd never made the tour. He's 38 years old. And he, and, and he wins the thing. And it's like, this is career changing. It's life changing. And, and it's not Speeth and Nicholson and Augusta, but it is. You know, it, it, it's in some ways even more powerful, uh, and it's not the most. It's not. It's not going to have the, the the better ratings, but it, it's in some ways 
you know, even more heartwarming to watch a guy grind. But you also see the heartbreak. I mean, Keith Mitchell uh, in, in 2017, Xander Shoffley in 2016, they both got knocked out uh, of, of the top 25 at the very end, and they finished 26th. Well, look at them now, you know. Yeah. One's won an Olympic gold medal. Mitchell's a winner on the PGA Tour. And uh, you watch those careers ebb and flow and the, the highs and the lows. Um, those are moments, you know, that, that I love. It's not just, um, it's not just the moment at Augusta. I'll tell you another one that maybe as, as an electric moment in any sport that I've ever covered was at the Solheim cup two years ago. You got Suzanne Pedersen and Mm -hmm. we already heard whispers that she probably was going to retire. She hadn't played hardly at all, even up till then. And she makes the walk-off putt on the 18th hole at Glen Eagles, and Europe wins. And there's something about a home team winning, you know, when the the they flood the 18th green, and I'm down there with the with the the pack on trying to uh, interview players, and it's chaos, and I'm getting swarmed. It's a mosh pit down there. It was an electric moment. I hope we have that next week at at, at Enver. I told you this would be relatively pain-free. It has been. For you, except for your Augusta story, which we'll probably just highlight. I won't put that out as like on headline. That's okay. Sure, go ahead. I got, it had a happy ending. It did. You got to play 54 holes or 45 and you didn't borrow any clubs and everything worked. Over eight years. Okay. So it was a bit of a a, a long way to the turn. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, And and someday we'll let everybody know what the 12 means. But uh, appreciate uh, you being with us. Appreciate the friendship. See you soon. All right, brother. Thank you. Here we go.